This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for Thursday, November 9th, 2023. This week's Intego Mac Podcast security headlines include Apple releases updates to its operating systems. Were there any security fixes? Google is updating its policy on abandoned Gmail addresses. Do you have any you've forgotten about? And we've got a roundup of recent announcements from several new and increasingly popular AI services. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern, and Intego's Chief Security Analyst, Josh Long. Good morning, Josh. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Kirk? I'm doing just fine, and I know you're happy that for once Apple released the updates before our podcast instead of waiting until we finish recording. So we record on Wednesday afternoon, and usually in the past few months, Apple has released security updates just as we're finishing recording. Here, they released it yesterday. Thank you, Apple. There's actually no security updates this time. It's a purely bug fix release across the board. We got macOS Sonoma 14.1.1 iOS and iPadOS 17.1.1, watchOS updates, there were a bunch of things that got updated, but none of them contain security patches this time. How can we be sure of that? Well, okay, I should actually make a little caveat on that. What that actually means is that on Apple's Apple's security updates and rapid security responses, that's the name of the page, and if there are security updates in a particular patch, then what they do is they create a new link on this page and they give you a bunch more details. If, however, there's no CVE entries, meaning that it's not a numbered vulnerability, then they'll just say instead they'll put an entry but not a link and it'll just say underneath it, this update has no published CVE entries. So that's what we got for iOS, macOS, Sonoma, watchOS 10.1.1 and we got a minor update for certain Mac models for macOS Ventura. But there still could be some security fixes without CVE numbers, right? Theoretically, that's true. I've never seen Apple do this before, where there was an update that they specify there were no published CVE entries, but they still credited other researchers. So possibly what Apple might do in that situation is they might save those additional credits for the next version of macOS or iOS that actually does patch security issues. Maybe that's where they would credit those additional researchers for their help. Okay, we'll keep our eyes on it. So we have new Mac malware, and we're trying to figure out how to pronounce this. Blue Noroff or Blue Noroff. Blue Noroff is a division of the Lazarus Group. The Lazarus Group is North Korean hackers. And I was looking up Blue Noroff on Wikipedia, and their most infamous attack was a 2006 Bangladesh bank robbery. They tried to transfer a billion dollars from the Bangladesh Bank's Federal Reserve Bank of New York's account. And they managed to transfer about $100 million, but then the Federal Reserve Bank of New York blocked the remaining transactions due to suspicions raised by a misspelling. There have also been some Mac-specific threats attributed to this APT, or Advanced Persistent Threat Group. One of them was last year, there was something that the U.S. government told us about in mid-April 2022. They said something called Trader Traitor also known as ORAT, was targeting blockchain companies. And also earlier this year, we had something that was called Rust Bucket. You might remember we talked about that back in May. 
This is the same group that's responsible for those threats that's now got this new, it's called a couple different things, depending on who you ask. It's either called Objective C Shells, OBJ Seashells, meaning Objective Seashells, like seashells, haha. Or else it's a variant of Rust Bucket, which is the one we talked about earlier this year. God, these names are childish. They really are. And the worst, the worst thing is they're really confusing to keep track of, right? And it's not the hackers who come up with the name. In fact, they didn't come up with the name Blue Noroff. It's different security companies who named this malware in different ways without any consistency. So three different companies could call the same malware different things, and it makes it confusing for people, which is the advantage of CVE numbers for vulnerabilities and threats, because everyone can agree on what the CVE number is. Well, not only that, but it, it's... You've got different names for malware, but then you've also got different names for APT groups. They might be called by a number like APT38, or they might be called Blue Noroff, or they might be called Stardust Cholima, or <laughs> any number of other like ridiculous names that people come up with. So the thing is, like all of these different companies that track these groups, they have their own ways of identifying those groups. And so there may be some disagreement sometimes on who the actual threat actor is. For example, this particular group is believed currently to be a subgroup of the Lazarus group, which is another North Korean hacking group. Is it the Lazarus group? Is it just like a subgroup of them? Are they unrelated, but kind of work together? Like who, who really knows? Like we're all basing this on circumstantial evidence for the most part. Yeah, it's, it's complicated, but everybody tracks them all differently. Okay. I just asked ChatGP to give me 10 generic names that a security company could use to name malware it has discovered. You want to hear what it comes up with? Sure. Why not? These are good. These are good. We, we, Intego should use these. Cyberstorm, Darknet Rider, Malicious Bite, B-Y-T-E, Shadow Strike, InfraGuard, StealthBot, Virus Vortex, that's my favorite, Virus Vortex, Code Crusher, Threat Titan, and Rogue Wave. <laughs> <laughs> these are great names. Come on. These are much better than Blue Noroff and, and Objective Seashells by the Seashore. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's not bad. It's not bad. I, I, I don't know. That one sort of sounded more like a security product than, than malware, but... InfraGuard. That sounds like a yeah, security yeah. product. Yeah. But this is good. I'll send you these names. You can pass them on to the Intego threat team and, you know, we can use some of these. <laughs> sure. Anyway, we want to move on to talk about the iMac. We talked about the new M3 Max last week and Apple has announced officially that there is no Apple Silicon 27-inch iMac coming. But does that mean that they might make a 28-inch or a 29-inch or a 30-inch? Because if you remember, the, so the current iMac is 24.5-inch. It replaces the 21.5-inch iMac. So the speculation since the M1 iMac has always been that the larger iMac would be larger because the bezels are smaller and the computer's not that big. So maybe they're saying, well, we're not going to make a 27-inch iMac. And then next week, they're going to announce a 30-inch iMac. A, a lot of people have been discussing about the iMac. And I, I want to link to an article in The Verge today, an iMac review. It says, the iMac has become a computer in search of a purpose. And the reviewer is saying, what's the point of this computer if it's not got a display big enough for me to use and if it doesn't have enough memory for me to use? And it's one of these reviewers who's saying, well, this computer isn't for me, so it's in search of a purpose. The iMac is an extraordinary computer for people 
to use at home for me. I use it for my work. A lot of people who don't want to have 350 Chrome tabs open would be very happy with an iMac. Do you need a 30-inch or a 27? I mean, Apple is really probably trying to get people to buy the Mac Studio and the Studio Display, which cost twice as much. But the fact that they came out and said that they're not making a 27-inch iMac is curious because Apple rarely says what they're not going to do. Right. This was an actual Apple representative saying this, not just like leaked through Mark Gurman or whatever. (laughs) So, yeah, that is pretty unusual. I I will say I'm, you know, I I don't think it matters that much. I don't. and, And I also agree with you that this particular reviewer was talking as though their own personal views represent the majority of people, which is absolutely not the case. I think for the, for most people, an iMac is a great product, and there's no reason why not to get an iMac. If you really want a bigger display, then sure, get a Mac Studio, get a Mac Mini, and hook it up to an external display. It doesn't even have to be an Apple display. There's a lot of really good displays from other companies that you can hook up to a Mac Mini, Mac Studio, or Mac Pro, and will look really great. We want to briefly talk about some comparisons between the M3, the M3 Pro, and the M3 Max. And we discussed these last week, but I want to link to an article on Apple Insider and points out something that I didn't mention last week when we were talking about this. The different chips don't only have different cores, but they also have different memory bandwidth. And memory bandwidth is important when you're doing any kind of processing because it means that the data can get to the chip faster. The M3 has 100 gigabyte memory bandwidth, 100 gigabytes per second. The M3 Pro, 150. And the M3 Max, either 300 or 400, depending on whether you have the 14 core or the 16 core. So this can make a difference in speed if you're doing really, really demanding tasks. But there's something I thought about yesterday when I was recording a different podcast about photography. And we're talking about, you know, do photographers need this? Do they need a Pro or a Max? And you can always argue that someone editing video benefits from this sort of thing. And then I realized who Apple is marketing these MacBook Pros too. It's developers using Xcode. If there is one app that really benefits from processors, it's Xcode. And yes, there are people who are sequencing genomes and folding proteins and all that that we saw in Apple's presentation, but they're making these Macs for all the people who are developing apps for iPhones and iPads who need Xcode to run faster. And Xcode is notoriously slow. Fair point. And and just to reiterate something we mentioned last week, you know, if you don't have a new Mac and you don't particularly need something that's like ridiculously fast, that's, you're not going to be coding, you're not going to be encoding a lot of video or things like that, then you don't really need an M3. Like, honestly, you could buy an M2 machine and be super happy with it. So if you don't have to buy the latest iMac or MacBook Pro that they just came out with and get an M3 processor. For the majority of people, M2 or even really M1 is still a great processor. And if you have an Intel Mac, this would be the best upgrade you've ever made if you bought any of the M processors. We're still on like the 27-inch Intel iMac, which was the last one that Apple released. Upgrading, even if it's only a 24 and a half inch, you'll really like it. I want to talk about an email I received last week, and this kind of surprised me. It came from Google. It talked about an account. I won't mention the name of the account, but I didn't remember creating this account. And I contacted Josh and I said, well, This looks like it might be scammy, but it's not because all the links really go to Google. And when I looked into it, I realized it's an account that I created in 2005, 18 years ago. I think Gmail came out in 2004. 
probably created it for some sort of an article that I was testing to have another Google account, never used it since then. When I logged into Gmail, well, first of all, I had to use the recovery link to get my password to log into the account. Then when I logged into Gmail, I found some messages. The oldest one was from 2012, and I eventually found the first setup email message from 2005. So here's what's happening. Starting December 1st, Google is going to start deactivating accounts that have not been used in at least two years. If you have an old Google account that you set up for whatever reason, in my case, I forgot about it, so I didn't even need it. But you may have an old Google account that you set up for some reason that you don't want to lose. In that case, you need to log in. Once you log in once, then you're fine for another two years. We're going to link to Google's inactive Google account policy article to explain this. But if you do have an old Google account and you want to keep it, make sure you log in. One thing that we don't know for sure yet is whether Google is going to allow people to register a previously registered email address. I really hope that Google does not allow this because this would be really bad for people's security if that old email address was ever used for any kind of service, right? To register, to sign up for a service. So if that email address has ever been, for example, in a data leak, then it's out there on the dark web. Like somebody can find a database that has that email address. And if they discover that, hey, this address isn't registered anymore, I can now register this address. Now they can, whoever that hacker is, that person who goes and creates that address again, can now break into any of your accounts by just sending a password reset request to that email address that now they are in control of. So hopefully Google doesn't allow reuse of these addresses that are expiring Maybe they'll just stick them in a separate database and say these are held in reserve and will never be available again. If, if Google does that, that would be the right approach. If Google allows them to be reused, then we've got a problem on our hands. So what Apple does with iCloud email accounts is they allow you to have three active aliases. And if you deactivate an alias, you can never use it again. So Apple is keeping track of aliases so they can't be reused. And that seems to be just the way it should work. Okay, when we come back, we're going to talk about this week's AI news and more. Protecting your online security and privacy has never been more important than it is today. Intego has been proudly protecting Mac users for over 25 years. And our latest Mac protection suite includes the tools you need to stay protected. Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9 includes Virus Barrier, the world's best Mac anti-malware protection. Net Barrier powerful inbound and outbound firewall security, personal backup to keep your important files safe from ransomware, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Best of all, it's compatible with macOS Sonoma and the latest Apple Silicon Macs. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today. When you're ready to buy, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get a special discount by using the link in this episode's show notes at podcast.intego.com. That's podcast.intego.com. And click on this episode to find the special discount link exclusively for Intego Mac Podcast listeners. Intego, world-class protection and utility software for Mac users, made by the Mac security experts. So before we get to AI, here's a little security feature that 
I guess every one of these apps should have. WhatsApp is now letting you hide your IP address when you're making calls. Shouldn't every app that connects you directly to another user offer this as a feature? Well, yeah, it it seems like sort of an obvious thing, right? Like, why would you want to leak your IP address? But at the same time, I kind of understand why this was the case before. So the way a lot of these technologies tend to work is it's peer-to-peer. So like it's directly from one device to another, and there's no proxy or something in between. And so in those cases where it's one user connecting directly to another user, then it kind of makes sense that those devices know the other person's IP address. And so it's nice that WhatsApp now allows you to hide your IP address during calls I agree with you. This this does seem kind of crazy that this already wasn't an option, but I also kind of get it. Now, I wanted to say that this is a good reason to use a VPN, because if you're using a VPN all the time, then you don't ever have to worry about your IP address leaking and potentially giving away the neighborhood where you live or things like that, which can sometimes be inferred from your IP address. So using a VPN all the time, you know, some people think that, oh, well, you know, a VPN is going to slow me down. I use a VPN 24-7 on all of my devices, and I don't have any kind of issues with speed. If you do experience an issue, like maybe you're downloading a really giant update or something, you can turn it off temporarily and download those multiple gigs and then turn your VPN back on if you want to. But I, I definitely recommend leaving a VPN just on all the time because it prevents your IP address from leaking. You may not realize this, but every website that you go to gets your IP address just by visiting that site. It's in a log somewhere in their server access logs. So you're giving away your IP address all the time, whether you realize it or not. Okay, we've talked about software called Kimu, Q-E-M-U. We don't know how it's pronounced. We've talked about it to run Windows on a Mac. An interesting proof of concept has come out. A developer has been working on a Kimu-based iPhone OS emulator, and it's running iPhone OS 2.1. 2.1, that's old. That's what, 2008, 2009. That's really old. There's not much you can do with it, but it's kind of interesting that if they could come up with an iPhone OS emulator a little bit more recent and you could play old iPhone games if you can find the old game files. This is actually kind of amusing. So if if this were something where you could run, you know, recent versions of iOS, I would be a lot more interested in this. But guess what? I mean, you actually kind of can already run iOS on macOS if you're using developer tools. So I, I don't know how useful this is, but it's kind of cool that somebody was able to put this hack together and, and run really old versions of iPhone OS. So Good, good for them. It's, it's, a, it's a fun hack, if nothing else. So the guy who devalued that really well-known social media app recently has released an AI tool. It's called Grok because he's so original that he uses science fiction terms for all of his things. This is only available to premium plus users on that social media service, and which is really complicated to become a premium plus user. The problem is that both Apple and Google are already hosting fake Grok chatbot apps in the app stores. And these are, we don't know if they're actual scams or whether they're just trying to sell the app to make money or sell the app to collect information because you give a lot of personal information to these chatbots when you're asking for things. Right. We're talking about XAI is the name of the company with a lowercase X and a capital AI. 
And this is one of Elon Musk's companies. And yes, anyway, so if you are a user of X Premium Plus, which is this new tier they just introduced that you can't easily upgrade to, if you fall into all those criteria, you may be able to get access to this new Grok platform soon. So this is basically Elon Musk's answer to ChatGPT. So what happens if you try to find an app for this platform on the App Store? Well, if you search for XAI chat, you'll come across several things, some that use the exact name and same stylized the same way with a lowercase X and a capital AI. And they're in the app store, both on Apple's app store for iOS and iPad OS and frankly, Mac OS too, because you can run some iPhone or iPad apps on the Mac that you can obtain through the Mac app store. And also on Google Play Store. So Android also has these fake XAI apps as well. So the main thing you need to know is you can't get an app that allows you to use this new Grok ChatGPT competitor on any platform right now. So don't expect that you're going to find this in any app store. If you see something like this, it's a scam. They're trying to trick you into downloading their ripoff app. And again, who knows what they're going to do with your data, whether they're actually going to keep it private. And I wrote an article about this. I, I looked this up. Like as soon as that new platform launched, I checked the app store and there were already apps that claimed to be XAI apps. And well, they're not. And if a developer is already lying about that in the app title, in the screenshots, then do you really think that it's a good idea to trust them? No, most of these apps have in-app purchases or subscriptions. And I definitely don't want to be giving my money to a developer who's already, you know, shown that they're not super ethical because they're violating trademarks and copyrights. Not a good idea. Not only that, but you don't know what they're going to do with your data necessarily either. So I would just avoid these apps altogether. By the way, interesting side note, in if you have Windows, the Microsoft Apps Store does not have any fake XAI apps. And also, interestingly, if you search for ChatGPT or OpenAI, you will get zero results. So while... You get a lot of results on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store when you search for those terms, including the official OpenAI ChatGPT app. You get a lot of other things that are kind of sketchy. And Windows doesn't have that. They don't have the official app, but they also don't have any search results for anything that uses those particular trademarked terms. So it kind of seems to imply that Microsoft has cracked down a lot harder on these lookalike AI chat apps than Apple and Google have. So OpenAI announced some new capabilities for ChatGPT. GPT-4 now can allow input of up to about 300 pages of text. That's a huge amount. So you can put a book into GPT and have it do things with it, summarize it, etc. It also has knowledge of world events up to April 2023. And one of the problems with GPT previously is it ended in, what was it, November 2021. So when you were asking any questions about things since then, it didn't know it. Now, it's still limited to April, and I guess they're going to update this every few months. 
There are a lot of other features that are a little obscure in terms of writing code and dealing with things. But there's one thing that really blew me away when I tested it this morning. They have a new text-to-speech feature. The quality of these voices is the best that I've ever heard in text-to-speech. There's about a half a dozen voices, and there's a, a standard and a high-definition version of the voices. I'm going to link to a blog post on the openai.com website where you can listen to some samples. This is really good. And of course, this raises a lot of questions. This isn't a voice made to sound like someone else. This is like the voices you have already on your Mac or your iPhone that read text-to-speech that always sound a little bit artificial. But these sound so good that I can see these being used for audiobooks, for articles, etc., You'll certainly have some terms that they can't pronounce correctly, but this is an extraordinary quality. They've added some improvements to DALI, which is the image generator. This is going so fast. It's like we're in the dial-up stage of AI, and in two years, we'll be in the DSL or the fiber stage. Right. And this is all advancing very quickly. And by the way, during that presentation, Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, got up on stage and he actually had Satya Nadella from Microsoft even come out and talk about their partnership, which is a big deal. I mean, Microsoft really has given a lot of funding to OpenAI because of their partnership and, and you know, obviously Bing rolls in OpenAI's chat GPT technology and DALI technology for image generation and so forth. So Bing AI is also going to significantly improve because of this partnership as well. So a lot of really positive announcements. If you're excited about generative AI and you don't see it as a threat to your job or or whatever, you know, th- this is definitely a, a, a big week for artificial intelligence and chatbots and so forth. One of the issues around generative AI is that you may be giving some personal data to your devices. On your computer, you may be typing something into a browser window to ask ChatGPT a question. And you may not want this data to be stored by whatever company is doing this. Samsung's Galaxy X24 will likely, according to The Verge, include on-device generative AI called Samsung Gauss. This is really important. And, you know, Apple hasn't really come out with generative AI yet, though Tim Cook in the recent earning call said that they were working on things. I can see Apple providing generative AI tools with on-device processing and really touting the privacy of this. And this is really important, you know, because you could be in a business where you're sending, you know, important business intelligence to some computer someplace in the cloud and you don't know what happens to it. So this is really important. Brave, the company that makes a browser, has released an anonymous and secure AI chatbot. So this is another way that companies are starting to realize just how much personal and private and corporate data is used with these tools and how it needs to be protected. Right. And you may or may not have access to this just yet. This is starting to roll out in the Brave browser on desktop. They haven't quite added this feature for everybody yet. It looks like I just got access to it because I checked yesterday, I think, and I did not yet. But now I do see it show up in, in the sidebar. So we'll link to an article where you can find a little bit more details about Leo is what they're calling this new Braves version of this AI smart assistant. The main point of this one is that it's trying to be more private. And they're saying, basically, you don't have to give away your information to some other company. We're going to keep all of your data private for you and you don't have to worry about leaking it to somebody like Google or Microsoft or OpenAI. 
Okay, last thing we want to talk about Google. Google Security Blog says more ways for users to identify independently security tested apps on Google Play. And we just talked about scam apps for XAI, Grok, etc. Now Google is going to include information if apps have had an independent security review. The problem with this is if the app doesn't have an independent security review, Google's still going to sell it in the Google Play Store. So you're really not protected unless you decide you can only get apps that are independently reviewed. But how many apps will have independent security reviews? We don't know yet. One thing that's not entirely clear, and maybe I need to dig a little bit deeper into this one, is how do they determine whether that independent security validation is legitimate? Like, are they only allowing independent security validations from certain companies that Google trusts? Or are they allowing developers to say, yeah, we got an independent security audit, (laughs) wink. (laughs) Well, we don't know. I think if Google is announcing this and making a step, then there must be something behind it. But it's true that we want to have more details. I'd I'd like to see Apple do something like this. I'd like to see fewer scam apps. And you're really active on Twitter pointing out all the scam apps that are available in in the App Store, and particularly this just in a couple of days, right? The Grok AIX or whatever it's called. I would like to see Apple do something more proactively about that. But we'll have to wait. Yeah, 100% agree. By the way, if you do have an Android device, the badge to look for, the thing that will show up in the Google Play Store is it'll have a little section. If you scroll down, you may have to scroll down a little bit to see it, but it says independent security review. And then it has a little thing that says, in this case, a VPN app. It says VPN apps with this badge in the data safety section have been independently validated against a global security standard. So that sounds like they're talking about a very specific standard here. And it's got a little green shield badge with a star in it. If you see something like that, um, that's apparently starting to roll out maybe just to VPN apps at first, but it's probably going to roll out to other apps as well that have third-party audits. Okay, next week, you know, we're going to come back to our annual discussion of Black Friday because Black Friday is right around the corner. We're going to talk about how to shop safely and securely when you spend all your money for something you don't need on Black Friday. Until next week, Josh, stay secure. All right, stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to follow us in Apple Podcasts or subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software, intego.com.